0: Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in me. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story & Table. This is Season 1, Episode 2, A Gospel Story. I'll begin by telling a gospel story that is, for many Christians, especially in the United States, the gospel. It goes like this. Due to Adam and Eve's sin, which was eating from a tree called Knowledge of Good and Evil, humans are inherently depraved, separated from God, and in need of salvation. Thankfully, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a Savior, and by dying on a cross, his shed blood has the power to forgive sins. Anyone who places their trust in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins is saved, and to be saved means that a person will spend eternity in bliss, in a place called heaven, rather than eternity in torment, in a place called hell. Now, this podcast exists to explore the tables that Christian stories set. So, let's consider some of the implications that this particular gospel story has on the lives of people. Here are a few thoughts. Guilt and shame. According to this gospel story, humans are depraved. To be depraved is to be morally corrupt and intrinsically wicked. Of course, this human state can be altered by trust in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, but let's just sit with this part of the story for a moment. Imagine that you're a child growing up in a church in which this story is told again and again. Without trust in Jesus, you are sinful. Without trust in Jesus, your heart is wicked. Without trust in Jesus, your desires are ungodly. And subtly, over time, this story sinks deeper and deeper into your bones. You aren't good. In fact, at the deepest part of yourself, you are bad, evil, wicked. Do you see how this story sets a table of shame and guilt? I am sullied, racked with sin, and the deepest parts of myself are corrupt. And this leads me to another feature of the table that this gospel story sustains, which is distrust. If you live within this story for long enough, then it begins to have an impact on your thoughts about that small, quiet voice inside of yourself. Some people call it your knowing, right? Like like that knowing that feels afraid or brave or hesitant or excited. Or the ways in which our knowing points us in a direction or tells us something about ourselves. Over time, this gospel story causes great suspicion about our knowing, and for some, that suspicion grows to be so grand that they begin to mistrust their very own selves. And taking this a step further, a feature of the table that this gospel story sustains is the allocation of knowing. For if we can't trust ourselves to be decent and kind, then we have to place our trust in people and systems outside of ourselves that hold all of the power in telling us what is good and right. I remember feeling this so deeply in my earlier years, which is strange because after trusting in Jesus, this gospel story told me that I was redeemed through and through. (laughs) But the fall of Adam and Eve sat so deep inside of me I found that not even Jesus could save me from feeling pretty lousy about myself. Now, to be clear, the table that this gospel story sets isn't all bad. It absolutely rouses gratitude. Gratitude for the forgiveness of sins. Gratitude for the conversion from wickedness to righteousness. Gratitude for the promise of eternal bliss in a place called heaven. So much Gratitude. But here's the thing lurking right beside the gratitude are other experiences such as fear. Fear for family and friends and humanity who do not trust in Jesus. And this fear rouses worry. What am I to do? I must do something. And this can very easily lead to relational manipulation and emotional violence because, according to this gospel story, people must trust in Jesus or else. Several months ago, I was on vacation sitting out on a lovely deck looking out at a beautiful mountain range when I came to realize that the person on Zoom sitting out on the deck above me was talking with a group of friends about how to save their friends and family members. And while I understood because of their particular gospel story that they thought their strategic conversation was loving. Talking about shaping a conversation to get to the point that they wanted to make? Well, that's manipulation. And encouraging strength to tell their unsaved friends and family members that they were headed to eternal torment in a place called hell if they didn't trust in Jesus' shed blood? Well, that is violence. It's a table of manipulation and violence as a result of a gospel story still told by many Christians today. A common response that I've heard from many Christians who believe in and tell this story is, Mike, this gospel may be difficult to hear, but it's biblical. In my mind, there are at least two problems with this way of thinking. First, the word gospel means good news. And the idea that humans are depraved and in need of Jesus' shed blood to satiate a divinity who then lets the few who believe into heaven while sending the majority of humans to hell forever? That is not good news. And second, this story of the gospel isn't actually biblical in a straightforward kind of way. The path to this particular gospel story is a mishmash of numerous Bible stories and passages woven together, profoundly shaped by culture over the past few hundred years, and uniquely expressed in a Western Protestant evangelical history that has reduced good news down to a statement that is to be believed or else. And this brings me to another gospel story that is much more ancient and biblically straightforward, which I think has the potential of setting a table that is truly good for our lives and flourishing. But to understand this gospel story, we need to go on a brief literary and historical journey. So please stay with me. I believe it will be worth your time. Going back to the years around the life of Jesus, the first Roman Caesar, Julius, was said to have divine origins. Because of this, he was sometimes called the divine Julius. And so when Julius's son Augustus came after Julius, it's of no surprise that he was considered to have some divinity in his blood. And this is why it also made sense to call Augustus the son of God. So, you see, Caesar was the son of God. Now, if you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing. Jesus was not the first son of God. And this is very important to understanding the gospel story. There's more. Caesars were also referred to as saviors. An ancient inscription about Caesar Augustus, the one who reigned around Jesus' time, reads, Whereas the providence, God, which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom it, God, filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order." And so, you see, Caesar, the son of God, was a savior who brought about peace on earth. Now, again, if you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing. Jesus was not the first savior who was said to bring about peace on earth. And this, too, is very important to understanding the gospel story. And if all of this isn't interesting enough, here's where things get real interesting. The phrase, peace through victory was a Roman phrase that described how the Caesars, the sons of God, saved the world. It took place like this. The greatest military to ever exist would go out and crush everyone who was not loyal to Rome. And then it would kill, sometimes through crucifixion, anyone remaining who would not subjugate themselves to Roman rule. And after new territory had been procured through massive violence, an announcement would be sent throughout the empire called good news. In the Greek, "euangelion." Side note, this is the same Greek word that's used for gospel and good news throughout the New Testament. It was this good news that declared the extension of peace in the world by way of massive violence. Now, I realize that this is a lot of obscure information. Here's a brief summary. Caesar, the son of God, was a savior who brought about peace on earth through violence. And a primary symbol for that peace was a cross. This, you could say, was Rome's gospel. It was Rome's declaration of good news throughout the empire. Caesar, the son of God, is a savior who brings about peace on earth through a cross. And as I've now said twice, I will say one more time, if you grew up in the church, this may be astonishing. Jesus was not the first Son of God. Jesus was not the first Savior. Jesus was not the first who was said to bring about peace on earth through a cross. That message was an already existing, tried-and-true sentiment throughout the land into which Jesus was born. And this... This is especially important to understanding the gospel story. Here's what I mean. Beginning with the oldest of all the gospels, the gospel of Mark, we read these words in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news. eugelion in the Greek. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What do we have here? Well, let me begin by stating what we do not have. We do not have a brand new idea being birthed out into the world. The good news, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the son of God, already existed. And this, you see, is the point. This is where the primary meaning in the Jesus story comes from. But to be clear, it's not by telling the same old story. And it's not by Jesus rivaling the Caesar story with more power and more might, which would sound something like this, surrender, submit, to use common medieval and modern-day Christian vernacular, believe or else. No. You see, that's just the same old gospel of Rome. Instead, the gospel of Jesus was an undoing. It was an intentional subversion of Rome's gospel. And so imagine with me, Caesar, the Son of God, the Savior, stands in his palace and rolls a scroll and declares his most recent gospel shortly after conquering another kingdom. Good news, good news, peace on earth through massive violence, symbolized throughout the land by a cross. With this very important context in mind, we can consider Luke chapter 4, in which Jesus, the Son of God, goes into a synagogue, takes the scroll of Isaiah, unrolls it, and then reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news, euagellion, gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring gospel. And what is this gospel? peace through massive violence? No. Listen to these words Jesus continues to read from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover sight for the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You see, this moment was not lost on his listeners. They knew exactly what he was doing. And according to Jesus, this is his gospel. Notice nothing here about humans being inherently depraved and separated from the divine. Notice nothing here about blood. Notice nothing here about heaven or hell. Nothing. In fact, if we were to pause here to think about messages of violence, messages of fear, messages of death, messages about not belonging, and messages about separation from divine goodness, then we would, with the context that we now have, say that such messaging is simply the age-old gospel of Rome. Nothing new here. And, if we continued to pause and consider messages about human depravity, or messages about the need for bloody sacrifices to appease a raging God, or messages of fear about eternity in a place called hell, then we would, with the context that we now have, say that such a gospel is nothing new. In fact, we might even be among the first to cry out, hey, hey, that, that's Rome's gospel which Jesus clearly intended to subvert with his declaration of gospel in Luke chapter 4. Now, let's consider some of the implications that this particular gospel story has on the lives of people. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring gospel to the poor. And so, according to this gospel story, we should take a moment to ask, who is poor? Like, who is poor in spirit, or in means, or in culture, or in society? You see, a feature of the table shaped by this story of gospel is an awareness of and an attention upon the poor. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And so, according to this gospel story, we should take a moment to ask, who is captive? Like, who is very literally incarcerated? And who is emotionally or relationally or politically or spiritually captive? You see, a feature of the table shaped by this story of gospel compels work toward their restoration and freedom. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And so according to this gospel story, we should take a moment to ask who is blind? Like who, due to health norms, struggles to flourish in this world? You see, a feature of the table shaped by this story of gospel inspires the transformation of systems, political systems, educational systems, occupational systems, healthcare systems that ensure care for every person. And then Jesus said, God has sent me to let the oppressed go free. And so according to this gospel story, we should take a moment to ask who is oppressed? who, because of their race, their gender, their sexuality, or their socioeconomic situation, is oppressed. You see, a feature of the table shaped by this story of gospel emboldens the alleviation of burdens. And finally, Jesus said, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor refers to Jubilee as it's described in Leviticus chapter 25, but to put it simply, Jubilee declared to every person, the favor of the Lord upon you. In other words, other gospels, other kings, and other kingdoms often say, the favor of the Lord upon you if, fill in the blank. And if not, the message quickly becomes, or else. But according to this good gospel, In this intentionally subversive son of God who saves, gospel is the unrestrained declaration of divine favor upon every person, especially those whom empires minimize and marginalize." How's that for a gospel story? Personally, I found that this story sets loving, inclusive, and passionately good tables. And it helps us to evaluate all other gospel stories. Like any gospel that adds to burdens, amplifies fear, increases alienation, or magnifies ifs, ands, and buts in order to belong. That is not revolutionary gospel. It does not set loving tables. And it is, according to this gospel story, very literally anti-Christ. For Jesus, the Son of God, is a Savior who declares subversive news that is good for every person. Of course, the subversiveness of this gospel hits its crescendo when Jesus, rather than wielding power and might, is crushed by power and might, thereby transforming a violent cross into a symbol of divine self-giving and solidarity with every person who is crushed by empires comprised of nations, cultures, and religions. How good is that, right? Now, some, especially those who live within the first gospel story that I've talked about, will wonder, well, what about Jesus shed blood in the forgiveness of sins? That particular question gets at a story called Atonement, which I'll talk about in episode 6. And I'm guessing there are others, especially those who live within the first gospel story that I've talked about, who will wonder, well, what about the spiritual side of the gospel? When they ask this question, they're often referring to issues of depravity and getting souls into heaven. I'll talk about the idea of depravity in the story of the Bible, part two, episode four. And I'll talk about the idea of heaven in the story of an afterlife in episode seven. But I do want to briefly talk about this word spiritual. The word spiritual refers to the immateriality of human existence. A few aspects of spirituality beyond depravity and getting to heaven include awe and wonder, mercy and grace, gratitude and peace, despair and hope. It's important aspects of spirituality like this that the first gospel story often minimizes and, I would say, even harms. Fortunately, there's a more ancient and biblical gospel story for Christians to spend their time within. It's a gospel story that is truly good. For it's a gospel story that nurtures spiritual health and vitality not just for the few who believe just the right things, but for every person on earth. No matter ideology, race, sexuality, gender, education, occupation, financial bracket, or citizenship. It's a gospel story into which Jesus invites again and again, come, follow after me. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. May your life be filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish thanks for listening to story and table if you find this podcast worthwhile thought provoking or encouraging will you share about it with your friends and family and if you don't already support the work of pearl church will you begin today you can donate easily and securely at our website pearlchurch.org